So thank you again to Roy and to John and to Rosemary for all uh, helping out. Um, and hopefully, uh, if I speak close enough to the mic, my voice will uh, carry to the back. Uh, but I want you to envisage you're playing family fortunes. And the uh, question or the stem that comes up is, we went out and asked 100 people what the secret of true happiness was. And they said. So what answers would you come up with uh, to uh, the question? happiness is. Now, if you're of a certain age and you remember a certain advert, you'll remember that happiness is what? A cigar called Hamlet. I've got to say that influenced me growing up, especially the guy that couldn't go out of the bunker uh, when he was playing golf and then he lights up a cigar. That's not to advocate smoking. Um, but there may be other things that people would find the true happiness is, well, maybe you want the power and the authority. And maybe that, whether it's at work or in another sphere of life, that's what would be true, the secret of true happiness. Or maybe it would be having enough money, or maybe even the feet, to get into uh, these shoes. Or maybe it would appeal to you, this certainly appealed to me, the idea of pleasure and adventure of this best job in the world where you go and be a caretaker of an island out in Australia. But the psalmist says to us that that's not what the secret of true happiness is. The psalmist in Psalm 1, as we're going to discover, says that if you want to be truly happy, if you want to be blessed, then the person that is blessed is the person that God approves of, the person that God is pleased with. That's when we can be truly happy or truly blessed. And as we're going to see throughout this psalm, the psalmist talks about those that are blessed, and he talks about those that are not blessed, and he calls them the wicked. And again and again we'll contrast the blessed with the wicked, now, before we write the wicked off and say, well, that's the murderers, that's the thieves, that's the tax evaders, that's the liars, let's remember that as far as the psalmist is concerned, the wicked are simply those who have put themselves first. Those that have maybe said that this pursuit of power or this pursuit of possessions or this pursuit of pleasure, those things are more important than God. Those are the people that walk in the way of the wicked. But before we get an answer to what makes somebody blessed, in the positive sense, the psalmist wants us to look at the negative. And he starts off by saying, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Again, before we switch off and say, well, that doesn't apply to us. We're, we're all Christians, so uh, we needn't worry about this first verse. It is worth just asking ourselves, is there anything in the counsel of the wicked that I actually do find attractive or appealing? And the word counsel just means uh, the advice of or the influence of. Is there anything that I am influenced by in the world or the way of the wicked? Am I influenced by this desire for 
power and authority or for more money and possessions or for the pursuit of pleasure and adventure and am I putting those ahead of God's way because the advice is that we do not walk in the counsel of the wicked and it may be that it affects us all differently at different times and sometimes we can be attracted by these various uh, aspects and I suppose it does go back to this picture here one of the pictures that Leanne showed about how possibly we do want to continue our growth as Christians but we also want to continue our enjoyment of the counsel of the wicked the ways of the wicked, the influence and we let the two grow together and the trouble is that whenever we let the two grow together very often the one will strangle the other and the one will stunt the growth of the other and as I was thinking about this psalm I suppose that was the question that I asked myself from this uh, first part what are the influences of the world that I find most attractive and I think we would all have something that may be different for each one of us but there will be ways and walks of the counsel of the wicked that we do find attractive and blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners and I suppose none of us like to stand out from the crowd we like to stand in the crowd to be together with whatever the crowd are doing and very often it is difficult to stand, to take a stand as a Christian and to be different from the crowd from what everybody else is doing we don't want to be made fun of as a Christian we find it socially embarrassing to stand up for our faith but here the psalmist is saying we don't want to be standing in the way of sinners we want to be standing out from the crowd and again it is very difficult to stand out from the crowd to stand with no shade under the full glare of the sun and it is not easy to be different from the crowd and the question again that comes from this phrase is when do we find it hardest to stand out from the crowd to take our stand and to resist the peer pressure uh, that can come to bear on us and God does not want us to be living our lives standing in the crowd of sinners and at still other times perhaps this phrase reflects where we are where the psalmist says blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of mockers and sometimes perhaps the world just treads us down and beats us down until our hearts do become hardened to the influence of the word of God and sometimes where we have been walking or standing sometimes it's just too much and sometimes it's just too much to go on with the Christian walk and we just find that we have to uh, sit down and possibly our hearts have become hardened and impervious to God's word God's word still comes to us 
but it just does not penetrate and it does not influence. And I suppose the question is, do our hearts get hardened and unresponsive to God's word at times? And the whole picture of these first three phrases is very much one of progressively becoming entangled, possibly even without meaning to. How we start off perhaps walking along attractive paths and then slowing down to stand in the crowd and finally sitting down under the influence of the world. Of just becoming gradually, imperceptibly, but very definitely led astray. And we can all think of, and perhaps possibly even if it's us ourselves, we can all think of people who start out as enthusiastic Christians and who with time, we or they can become dragged away and gradually, but imperceptibly, where our route goes into ungodly paths and we come to a standstill. It makes me think of um, a fly. And do you know those sticky pads that you hang in your greenhouse for the flies to stick onto? Usually bright, luminous colours. Uh, I suppose you can imagine Freddy the fly. And Freddy the fly is buzzing around and uh, he sees all his mates on this attractive-looking pad. And so he decides, well, if it's good enough for them. And so he, he buzzes along to see what it's all about and he lands on the sticky pad. And firstly, whenever he lands, you know, he can actually lift his feet the first couple of steps because he's still strong enough just about to keep walking. But then he can't even lift his feet anymore and he's come to stand. And then he starts to buzz his wings to try and get away, but he finds he can't. Now, I don't know whether flies physiologically can sit or not, But if he doesn't sit, he certainly then falls over and becomes totally stuck. And that, in many ways, is the image or the warning that the psalmist in verse 1 is giving us of just gradually becoming stuck under the influence of the world. So you'll all be pretty depressed about now, um, feeling pretty down. But in verse 2, we're going to come and look at what is the antidote. In verse 2, we are going to find something that will put non-stick shoes onto Freddy's feet so that he can still land and can still keep on uh, walking. So let's look at verse 2. And verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And here we find if you like, the two antidotes, or here are the two things that distinguish the man or woman who is truly blessed. And it is to take delight in God's word and to meditate on it. Now, I don't know how many of you here have ever received a love letter. I suppose in this electronic age, it's mostly done by texts and by emails these days. But I want to imagine that you've got a love letter. Or else a letter from a loved one far away. Maybe you're Adrian and Sandra and somebody's actually taken the time to write that letter and you have it there in your hand. 
And if you think about this love letter and somebody that has taken the time to write it to you and you hold it in your hand and it is this most wonderful, precious thing from somebody really precious to you. And even just holding it makes you think about them. And whenever you read it, you can actually almost hear their voice speaking the words to you because they're so significant to you. You can almost see their face as you read that letter. And that letter is a total delight to you. That is the way that God's word should be to us. Later on in Psalm 19, we read that God's word is more precious than gold, than much pure gold. That it is sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. That is the degree of pleasure and delight the psalmist was able to take in God's word. Not because it's a book, but because it is God's word. If we want to look at a story from the Bible, we can turn to the story of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem and he found that the people had fallen into the ways of the people around them and weren't walking in God's ways. And the first thing Nehemiah does is he builds the walls. But after he builds the walls, he calls them together so that Ezra can read God's word. And what we read from Nehemiah 8 is that all the people assembled in the square before the water gate. Ezra read it aloud. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. All the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because now they understood the words that had been made known to them. And in the understanding of the words that were made known to them, suddenly they had this real joy. The joy of the Lord was their strength. And here is just an example where people were able to delight in God's word. And that's a real challenge to me. Do I delight in God's word the way uh, Psalmist did? Do I treat it like a love letter from God? Do I hunger and thirst for it as if it was honey? And does it give me the joy the way it did to Nehemiah and Ezra? That is how precious this word is to us. And as well as delighting in it, we should meditate on it. And you know, if you get a love letter, I bet you nobody reads a love letter once. You read it, and you reread it, and you read between the lines, and you try and work out what they were saying, and what did they mean by this, and you pour over it, and you want to get out of that letter everything that you possibly can. And the challenge is, do we devour God's word with that degree of intent? There's a quote from Spurgeon who says that we have to, if you like, chew the cud. Spurgeon says, meditation chews the cud. It gets the sweetness and nutritive value of the word into the heart and the life. So we should be ruminating on it. We should be trying to get, 
if you like, these nutritive juices out of God's word. And so if, like the people of Nehemiah's day, we have lost our way, or if we have moved into the way of uh, the sinner, then here is the cure. Here is the antidote. Here is, if you like, what can revive our souls. And it is to meditate on God's word, and it is to take delight in it. So I thought, well, it's all very well having these airy fairies ideas and saying to you, go out and to delight and go out and to meditate. But what practical things could you do? So here are just a couple of practical ideas for us to try. And the first one is just simply learn a memory verse. Now, don't learn a memory verse that says, thou must do this or thou shalt not do that. Take a memory verse that talks of God's goodness or that celebrates God's love or his majesty. Let's learn a memory verse that actually makes us delight in God. Or stick a verse on the fridge or in your desk at work and remember to read it. Again, a verse that celebrates God. Or start with a passage that you know. And then from that passage, just as Philippians chapter 4 urges us to do, think about whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. Think about such things. Try and think about the goodness of God in the passage that we read. Or choose a psalm and ask God to speak to you from it. Take the time just to read it slowly and to try and to hear God's voice speaking to you in his word. Dallas Willard has written a book called Hearing God. And Dallas Willard says most of us don't hear God because we don't expect to hear God. Do we actually expect to hear God speak to us whenever we read his word? Just the same way as he spoke to the people in Nehemiah's time. And I've got to say, this is probably my flaw. Uh, because yes, I can read the Bible. I can read it as a set of instructions. And I can try and follow it as a set of instructions. But how often do I actually take it as a love letter and actually read it as God speaking to me as one that he loves? If you remember none of my words today, remember these words from F.B. Meyer talking about telegraph wires and sending messages, and he says this, The written word is the wire along which the voice of God will certainly come to you if the heart is hushed and the attention fixed. The written word is the wire along which the voice of God will certainly come to you if the heart is hushed and the attention is fixed. And what a challenge to us to actually see if we can hear the voice of God. You might not be hearing my voice, but at least you can hear the voice of God. And a final suggestion. Write God a love letter back. I don't know whether you've ever thought about it, but just writing something down to God to, to just express your appreciation to him of all that he has done for us just some suggestions about how we can delight and meditate on God's word.
back to Psalm 1. And verse 3 says this. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. This is the picture of the person who delights and meditates in God's word. And it's just a wonderful, vibrant picture of life. And just visualize this in your mind to know that this is how God sees you. That God sees you. You are like a tree planted by streams of water. You yield fruit in season. Your leaf does not wither. Whatever you do prospers. And by thinking, by delighting ourselves in God's word, by meditating on it, we have sunk deep roots into God. And therefore, even whenever the drought comes, even in the hard times, then our leaf does not wither. And I suppose the question is, to me and to all of us, is that a picture of us? Are we flourishing and prospering in God in that way? Because verse 4 offers us a very contrasting picture of the person who chooses to ignore God's word. And verse 4 says, Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. And chaff really is the unwanted bits of wheat. After the grain has been removed, the light and worthless bits. It's dead, it's discarded, and it's aimless. And this image of chaff, and here we see chaff blowing in the wind, and that is exactly the opposite of the image beside it. The image beside it where the tree has deep roots and where the tree is fruitful, the chaff has no roots and the chaff has no fruit. And that image makes me think of a friend who is very often, I think, blown around in the wind, who is completely changeable depending on the friends that he is with. And one minute he will be talking interestedly about Christian things and whatever you want to talk about. And the next he will behave very differently because the company has changed. He doesn't have any roots of his own. He has got no values of his own. And he will just go with the flow. He will choose the easy route. And the psalmist warns, my friend, don't be blown around by every wind that comes along. Instead, put your roots in God's word. Because not only will you be blown around in this world, but you will also be blown away in the next. Because in verse 5 we read, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And so ultimately, the wicked will not be able to stand in judgment, and ultimately they will be excluded from the eternal blessing of God's presence with the righteous. Verse 6. 
For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I just love this picture. That's why we had to do the children's talk. And that's why we had to do this. Just this picture of the farmer going out to sow. And this farmer is going to watch over this crop. And this farmer is going to look after it. And he is going to love it and care for it. And God is watching over us. And God is caring for us in much the same way. And ultimately God will bring us to heaven. But not so the wicked. They have chosen to ignore this love letter from God. They have chosen not to know him. And God is not watching over them to protect them. And they will perish. In this psalm, in verse 1, we have seen the way of the wicked. And possibly, at times, it can look attractive. But in verses 5 and 6, we have seen that in the end, that way will perish. Proverbs 14, verse 2 says, There's a way of life that looks harmless enough. Look again. It leads straight to hell. And this psalm clearly shows that we have a choice to make. We have to walk either the way of the wicked or to delight and to meditate in God's word. And the choice that we make will have consequences, consequences for good or bad in this life. But more significantly, that choice will have eternal consequences. Much, I think, of the thinking about this sermon has been influenced by this couple here. This couple had a wonderful life together. He was a very gifted conductor. He brought pleasure to many people. She was accomplished in her own right, but was an utterly devoted wife. And everything that you read in the papers about them shows them to have been just a truly wonderful couple. Everything is positive about them. Last week the family released this statement. After 54 happy years together, they decided to end their own lives rather than continue to struggle with serious health problems. They both lived life to the full and considered themselves to be extremely lucky to have lived such rewarding lives, both professionally and personally. And that has stayed with me all week. Because at so many levels that is true. And if death is the end, then they have had a rewarding life. And they have, as they wished, died in a dignified way together. But what a tragedy. Because death is not the end. The family statement goes on to say that they had no religious beliefs. They do not want a funeral as they did not see any point in that. And I suppose it just highlights the challenge. There is, if you like, from Proverbs, a way of life that looks harmless enough. Look again. And that is the challenge that we have to make.
So to conclude, I have paraphrased the psalm, I suppose, along the lines that we've been thinking about. And I'll just let you read the verses there as they have been, if you like, rewritten at the end. But I don't want to end on a negative note. Instead, let's end by singing about this heaven that we do have a prospect of. God is watching over us and is caring for us to ultimately bring us to heaven. And that is the prospect of the blessed. Blessed is the man. And one day the blessed will be with God in heaven.